Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Pick Aside Podcast. My name is Joel Moran and this is now episode 70. In this episode, I will talk about the Nets' six-game winning streak, Ryan Saunders getting fired, the Toronto Raptors, Chris Paul's recent performances, then I will transition into the NFL and talk about Teddy Bridgewater's future with the Carolina Panthers, if the Cowboys will finally extend Dak Prescott, what's going to happen with Sam Darnold and Justin Fields as an NFL prospect, then I'll preview the offseason for the Seattle Seahawks and the Los Angeles Rams. This is now episode 70. If you're tuning in, thank you. I appreciate all of you guys. As you guys can see, Riv and um, Jack are not here today. Jack had an interview and Riv has work. So this is another solo show. I don't think it's going to be like this for too much longer. Here and there, I might have to do solo shows. But for the most part, it's always going to be the three of us here. And that's what makes this show pick a side. If it's just me, it's only pick my side. I've mentioned that before. And this is the 70th episode, which means this is the 70th time that I've been talking into this mic, giving my opinion. And I have to say, it's pretty surreal that I've been doing this for so long. It's been about a year now. This podcast started a year ago. And I just have to say, this is the happiest time that I've been in my entire life doing this podcast, talking about sports. There's nothing else that I'd rather do. And this this truly fulfills me. And for all you guys listening or watching, I just want to say thank you again because all the support has really been touching my heart dearly and I appreciate it always. This episode is probably going to be a long one. The reason why this is being recorded so late is being recorded at 10 p.m. Eastern time is because I've been sick throughout this whole day. I've been sneezing, coughing, and instead of taking DayQuil, I took NyQuil. And I slept throughout the whole day, and then I just woke up a couple hours ago. I wrote down notes. I have 11 pages of notes in front of me. This is going to be an awesome show, and I can't wait for you guys to listen or watch it. It's going to be a fun one. I can't wait. And before I get started, don't forget to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. You don't have to give us a five-star, four is fine, or whatever you want to review us. It's up to you, but you can give us a review and also write a review, and it helps our podcast grow tremendously. I haven't checked if we've gotten any new ones, but I'm going to check after this episode, and if we did, your review is going to be read on the next episode, so thank you guys for that. Now, before I get started, I'm going to take a little bit, of, a little sip of water because the first topic up is the Brooklyn Nets. And you know, I'm going to be amped up for that topic. Okay, I'm all good to go. The Nets versus the Clippers. The Nets won 112 to 108. It was a Sunday primetime game. It was an awesome game to watch, but I think we can all agree that it ended kind of poorly. Um, the Clippers came back in the fourth quarter, and it was a tie game, I believe, or the Nets were up by two. It was one of those. Kawhi Leonard drives to the basket, and James Harden is guarding him. James Harden is riding him the whole way, and Kawhi, he extends his arm, extends his arm and the referees call an offensive foul. In my opinion, that should have never been an offensive foul or a defensive foul. It should have been a playthrough, and we should have had a tie game there or the Clippers up, whichever one of those it was. But I kind of feel like the refs robbed us of what would have been a great overtime game. Plus, 
I was betting on the game. Lately, I've been really into sports betting, and I betted that James Harden would get 10 assists. I think he finished with 7 or 8, and I betted Joe Harris would have 14 points. He ended up with 13. So I was really hoping something good happened, and they went, went into overtime, but that's besides the point. I'm going to talk about the Nets right now, and because they've been on a hot streak, they are on a six-game winning streak. Five of them have been on the road. They beat the Pacers, the Warriors, the Kings, the Suns, the Lakers, and Clippers. They are now 12-1 and against 500 teams. And is anybody else surprised with how fast the Brooklyn Nets are clicking? I mean, it's unbelievable. Right now, I don't think there is any team in the Eastern Conference that can beat the Nets in, the, in a seven-game series, and I don't think there's any team in the Western Conference that can do it either. The main reason I think the Nets have been so so, so successful is because of one man, James Harden. I mean, I'm a huge James Harden fan. If you've been listening to this to this podcast, you know that. But he was snubbed from the All Star game. He wasn't an all-star starter. Bradley Beal made it over him. And I really don't know why. James Harden is averaging 24, 24.9 points per game. So 25, basically seven rebounds, 11 assists. He had 37, seven and 11 against the Clippers and Harden is shooting 50, 40 and in the high eighties and free throws because against the Clippers, he missed a ton. But I think the most important thing about this Nets um, six game winning streak is that They have given up 111 points per game during that winning streak. Right now in the NBA, that would currently rank 10th. When the James Harden move first happened, they had the best offensive rating of all time and the best defensive rating of all time. And people that have not been keeping up with the Nets still feel like they're a bad defensive team. But in reality, they are not a bad defensive team. And since KD has been out, Harden has taken it to a different level. Harden, James Harden right now, this is the first time with the Nets that he scored 20-plus points in four straight games. Those games have been 29 against the Kings, 38 against the Suns, 23 against the Lakers, and 37 against the Clippers. The Nets are 13-5 and with James Harden, and like I mentioned earlier, I don't think anybody thought they would click this fast. The, the big three in Miami with LeBron, Bosh, and Wade, when they were assembled, they were 9 and 10 to start. The Brooklyn Nets are 13 and 5 since the James Harden trade, so they are on a roll on a 6-game winning streak, and the biggest question mark when the Nets got James Harden was is he going to share the ball? Is he going to be able to play off ball? How is he going to play? Then shortly they noticed that oh, Harden is going to be the, be the point guard. He one, I don't think it should have surprised anybody. James Harden was a point guard in Houston. His position was shooting guard, but he had the ball for the majority of the game and was always in pick-and-roll situations and facilitating. He was always a point guard in Houston. That just wasn't what his position was called when you you know look on stat pages or whatever. And the second biggest question mark is, how is he going to fit with Kyrie Irving? We all knew Kevin Durant is not a problem. Kevin Durant can fit with anybody. But Kyrie is the one that is the wild card. And to this point, this win streak has been mostly without KD and just Kyrie and Harden. Kyrie and Harden have been playing great together. And Harden mentioned this in the postgame press conference that they have all figured out their roles. 
Harden knows he's the facilitator. Kyrie knows he's the scorer. KD knows he's a scorer. And everybody else knows their roles. DJ knows he's the he's a defender and a um lob catcher, pick and roll guy. Everybody knows their role. And I think that's what's making the Brooklyn Nets so successful right now. But we all knew Kyrie was a wild card. And to this point, Harden has been nothing but has only been praising Kyrie Irving this entire time. Yesterday, after they beat the Clippers, he said that he's one of the most skilled players of all time. He said that he loves him as a person, as a guy, so off the court as well. And I don't think, I mean, I don't think anybody is giving the Nets enough credit for how quickly they have clicked. Everybody has accepted their roles, and it's showing right now when KD comes back, who he's not only going to add offense to this team, but He's an elite defender as well, so he's going to add both. So this Nets team could be better defensively. Right now, they're one of the better defensive teams in NBA in this six-game win streak. And offensively, I mean, they're hitting historic numbers on the offensive end with the three. And the Clippers, I want to say this. They, they impress me, and I think people have to stop talking about the Lakers as being locks to make it to the finals because I think the Clippers are there, especially if Anthony Davis is not a hundred percent to go. The Clippers can definitely make it to the finals. I'm not too sold on Utah as finals locks. I think it's between the Lakers and the Clippers, but man, their team has a lot of depth and Kawhi is phenomenal. And so is Paul George, even though he like he like a lot of people like to disrespect Paul George nowadays, but he's still phenomenal. I want to say this because I think this is important. And when the when the trade happened for Harden, I said that the Nets were going to win a championship, but I don't think I was as adamant as I am now, and I'm about to say it again. The Brooklyn Nets will 100% win the NBA championship. There is no doubt about it. James Harden, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Durant are make up the best offensive scoring trio in NBA history, everybody talked about how it was how it was going to work. Now it's finally working. Everybody talked about the defense. Now the defense is good. In the six game winning streak, they're only giving up 111 points per game, which would rank tenth in the NBA currently. And they ha- they're on pace for historic offense. There is no team in the NBA that can beat the Brooklyn Nets in a seven game series. Everybody likes to talk about teams in the Eastern Conference like Philadelphia. The Bucs and the 76ers are 5-5 five and five in the last 10. The 76ers can barely beat 500 teams. They, they, they struggle against 500 teams. They have a 500 record or below against 500 teams. The Bucs, we all know in the playoffs they aren't what they are. And the Celtics, we know the Celtics aren't playing well at all. And who else is in the East? The Buc- I mean, the Pacers and Raptors? Nobody is worried about the Pacers and Raptors in the East. The Eastern Conference will be a cakewalk for the Brooklyn Nets. It's really about the finals for them, the Lakers or the Clippers, and I think they can beat either of those teams in a seven-game series, and I don't even think it will go to seven. It maybe go to six or five. People are sleeping on how good this Brooklyn Nets team is going to be. In the moment, everybody talked about how is it going to work, how is it going to this, how is it going to that, but five to ten years from now, we're all going to say, wow, how could anybody pick against this team And when talking about winning the championship because – It was so dynamic offensively, and they're getting slept on defensively. So I'll say it again. The Nets are going to win the 2021 NBA championship. 
when the trade first happened, I was really adamant in my opinion in that. I knew it was going to work off the bat, but even I have been very impressed with how the Nets have been starting and how hot they have been. And I told Jack on a podcast the other day, I want James Harden to be more aggressive. And since KD has been out, James Harden has taken on that role. And Harden looks like Houston MVP Harden right now. And that's the James Harden I always knew he was capable of. And that's the one I wanted to see in Brooklyn. And now it feels like this team is unstoppable. They are 12-1 and against 500 teams. What more can you ask? Well, the only loss came came against Philly without Kyrie and KD, I believe, or against Toronto, too. This team is a team to beat in the NBA, no doubt about it. Some other breaking news that happened in the NBA. Ryan Saunders got fired, the Timberwolves' old head coach. He's a very young coach. He's only 34 years old. He was the son of a legendary coach in, in Flip Saunders. Rest in peace to him. Ryan Saunders got fired. He went 43-94 and in his tenure with the Timberwolves, and during that time span, that was the third-worst record, um, only, only ahead of the Knicks and Cavs within that time span. And I want to say this. Whatever Ryan Saunders did in Minnesota does not depict the type of coach that he actually is. I don't think anybody can call Ryan Saunders a good, bad, or average coach because Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell have only only played five games during Ryan Saunders' tenure. When the T-Wolves traded for D'Angelo Russell, we were all excited because Cat and D'Lo, they were friends. They were going to make this good pick-and-roll duo, a point guard big man duo was going to be awesome. But they haven't been on the court together, and the Timberwolves are a t- talented young team. But when you don't have your best player on the court and your second best player on the court together um, for at least 50% of the time, it's hard to win games, especially when you're in the Western Conference. So I don't think he can be fairly judged, but... I also think it was pretty shady in how everything went down. Ryan Saunders got fired, and then like 30 minutes after, they hired Chris Finch to a multi-year deal to coach the team. If you aren't familiar with Chris Finch, he was an assistant coach for the Toronto Raptors. He was just on their staff this season. The Timberwolves actually had to ask permission to interview him and hire him, and I, the Raptors said yes, of course, so he's now their head coach. So I think there was a lot of shady stuff going there, but I want to move off the subject of Ryan Saunders because I don't think that's really the headliner of this topic. I'm going to say this. I think that Minnesota Timberwolves are way too talented to have the worst record in the NBA, which is a part of the reason they fired um, Ryan Saunders. Right now they are 7-24, and which is the worst record in the league by far. There's a pretty wide margin. Now, can Chris Finch win with this Timberwolves roster right now? Former assistant Raptors coach, um, the president of basketball operations for the Timberwolves, Gerson Rosas, if I mispronounce his name, I'm sorry. He worked with Chris Finch for four-plus years with the Houston Rockets organization, and Chris Finch is known as a coach who can maximize players and You look at the Toronto Raptors team, a lot of guys that flew under the radar that have been developed and now are really good, solid NBA players, Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Norman, and other guys. I could go on a tangent about those guys. But now he's with a lot of good young talent in Minnesota. You look at Jaden McDaniels, who 
already shows flashes of being an elite defender. He's he's he has to work on his offensive game. He's not polished there yet. Jared Culver, a top pick in last year's draft. Anthony Edwards, a top the number one pick in this past draft. Nas Reed, who I think is a really good offensive center, and Josh Okogie, and of course Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell. So for the most part, Chris Finch has a lot of talent to work with, and this is why I, I think they are they are too good to be the worst team in the league. They have lost a lot of close games this this season, and right now this is their talent: D'Angelo Russell, Ricky Rubio, Anthony Edwards, Malik Beasley. Carl Anthony Towns, Nas Reed, Jared Culver, Jaden McDaniels, Jordan McLaughlin, who I think is a slept-on point guard, and Joshua Kogi. Anthony Edwards has been inefficient to this point. We know that Carl Anthony Towns is one of the best centers. D'Lo is a really good scoring guard and really underrated passer. Ricky Rubio is a floor general. But I'm going to be honest, the guy I like the most out of this whole group that's not Cat or D'Lo is Malik Beasley. Malik Beasley in Denver... I knew he was going to be a star. I remember talking to my friend about Malik Beasley, and I said, look, him, I think he's going to be really good. And I don't think you can classify him as a star, but I think he's an ascending star. If he went to any other team that has, like, a winning situation, he'd be their third-best scorer on the team, maybe even two. Like You put him on the Mavericks right now with Luka, KP, and Malik Beasley. I think that is a pretty damn good team, and Malik Beasley might be the second or third-best player on that team Third for sure. He might be pushing for that second spot with KP. That's how good I think Malik Beasley is. He's a sharpshooter. He can space the floor. He He's just a bona fide scorer. And right now, can Chris Finch maximize this roster? The hardest part of this all is that D'Angelo Russell is going to miss three to five weeks with ankle surgery. So he's not going to be available for a while. But they did get Carl Anthony Towns back. And I think with Rubio, Edwards, Beasley, and Towns, you can win games. Carl Anthony Towns, we know what he's going to do, but I I think D'Lo being injured, of course, you never want somebody to get injured, but D'Lo being injured might be a blessing in disguise for Anthony Edwards because now Edwards gets to start more, gets to take more shots. And instead of having D'Lo, who's kind of more of a two-guard, um, kind of running the offense, we have Rubio, who's more of a guy who's going to get everybody involved running the offense. So it's going to help Edwards a lot. To this point, Edwards has been a human highlight reel, but he's been extremely inefficient. And I'm not going to knock him for it because it's just his rookie season. So nobody should really take stock into a player's rookie year, especially 30 games into the season. It makes no sense. But I think this could be a blessing in disguise for Anthony Edwards. And ultimately, we're going to get to see if Chris Finch can maximize this Timberwolves roster. We'll see if they finally start winning with him being their new head coach. I mean, I'm really excited to watch this. I was excited for the Timberwolves before the season started. And of course, it dwindled down because they started losing. But I'm still very excited for the talent they have on this roster. The talent they have is good enough to win. Now it's just about putting it all together and let's see if Chris Finch can do that. And I'm wishing the best of luck to Ryan Saunders, 34 years old. He's going to get another coaching opportunity somewhere down the line. And I actually really wanted him to succeed with the Timberwolves because of that history with his father there. I know that he wanted to succeed there as well. And we're just going to see what happens with him. But man, I'm hoping the Timberwolves can turn it around because 
the talent they have on this roster is they have a lot. It's it's a really slept on roster, and I wouldn't be surprised if the T Wolves start losing in three to four years from now. Most of the players on this roster are on new teams, and we're like, wow. They just ascended into a different player once they left the Wolves. Kind of like what you see what Andrew Wiggins is doing now. He's doing what he's doing in Golden State, one of the better defenders in the league. We'll see, but hopefully the Timberwolves can maximize this roster with this coach, Chris Finch, right now because they're way too talented to have the worst record in the entire NBA. Had to take another sip of water. And talking about the Minnesota Timberwolves and Chris Finch, a former Raptors assistant, going to the Timberwolves as a new head coach. We are going to talk about the Toronto Raptors right now. The Toronto Raptors are what what a saying I can use to describe the Toronto Raptors would be. It's not about how you start. It's about how you finished finish. That statement perfectly describes the Toronto Raptors they started out the season 2-8. and eight. They are now 16-15. and 15. They're ahead of the Celtics in the standings right now. And the Raptors have beaten the Nets. They have beaten the Bucks twice. They have beaten the 76ers. They beat them on Sunday. All the top teams in the Eastern Conference, and people are losing sight of this, but they have not played a home game yet. They are still playing in Tampa. They are not playing in the arena they're used to playing, and I think that makes such a huge difference. But I want to talk about their win versus Philly because I think that win was truly a statement when they've been playing this small ball lineup recently with OG, Norman, Pascal, Fred, and DeAndre Bembry starting. And I like that lineup for more defensive versatility. They still play Baines a lot of minutes per game, but they usually start out with that lineup. I really like that lineup, um, but in the game, in the first quarter, it looked like the 76ers were about to blow the Raptors out, and Fred Van Vliet went on a barrage and shot a bunch of threes, and he was the main reason they came back in the game, and then in the fourth quarter, the Raptors pulled away because Chris Boucher hit a barrage of threes and kind of sealed the game for the Raptors, and I think the perfect word to describe the Raptors win was resilience. No matter how much they were down at what moment in time, they kept on fighting and then they finally found a way to get hot and get going. And then he ultimately took the, took the win. And resilience is not only a name to describe their win, but a name to describe their whole team as a whole. You look at guys that make up this roster. This roster is made up of guys who had to earn their spot in the NBA Fred Van Vliet, undrafted. Um, Pascal Siakam, nobody knew he was going to become this. A late first-round pick. Chris Bruce he had to do his time in the G League before going to the Raptors. OG Ananobi, he tore his ACL in college, and that's why he dropped in the draft. DeAndre Bemery, he was kind of a forgotten player coming from Atlanta. You look at Norman Powell, he was never projected to be the scorer. And Terrence Davis, he made all-rookie team last season. He came out of nowhere as well. And I think that word perfectly describes the Toronto Raptors. And the Raptors beating the 76ers, they beat the 76ers without Kyle Lowry. And they are 6-0 without Kyle Lowry this season. And they're 16-0 and 
without Kyle Lowry in their last 16 games. So this begs the question, and I just want to ask it. I mean, I think this makes trading Kyle Lowry much easier, but should the Raptors trade Kyle Lowry and get some assets from it? Because there are some teams that are linked to Lowry, like the 76ers, because they want a better shot at winning the title, and the Los Angeles Clippers, because they don't have a true point guard on their roster. And obviously, you want the assets for Lowry, but I've been adamant in saying that I don't think that I think that the Raptors should stay loyal to Kyle Lowry and let him finish out his contract with the Toronto Raptors just because of all he's done for the city. And you know what he's done within his career when he got to the Raptors, I feel like you just let him finish out his contract. But you never know if Lowry wants to go to a title contender and he doesn't feel like the Raptors are that, he could get traded. But for the most part, I think the Raptors being undefeated without Kyle Lowry this season is more of a testament to how much depth the Raptors have. That's why it was so surprising that they started out so slow this past season because nobody really expected it. And outside of the Brooklyn Nets, because I think the Brooklyn Nets are the team to beat in the NBA, not just the Eastern Conference, and I don't think any team can beat them in a seven-game series, but you look at the other Eastern Conference teams, the Bucks, the Pacers, the Celtics, the... Uh, Who else is there? The 76ers. The Toronto Raptors can beat any one of those teams in a seven-game series, and I believe believe that wholeheartedly. The Milwaukee Bucks have been figured out already. We all know that. The Raptors have the Bucks number in the playoffs, and we know in the playoffs when you start building that wall and collapsing the defense on Giannis, they they have a really tough time. And Mike Budenholzer's philosophy on defense is so outdated that I don't know why they run it anymore. Um, His defensive philosophy is don't let people score in the basket, but he gives up a ton of open threes. You can't win like that. So I'm not high on the Bucks. You look at the Celtics. They are just a dysfunctional mess right now. They have to fi- they have to figure it out. I mean, they were up on the Pelicans about 24 points, and the Pelicans came back and beat them on Sunday on a primetime game. They have to figure it out. I think the, Ra- the Raptors can beat them in a series. You look at the Pacers. It's the Pacers. Like, we know the Pacers have some good players on their team, but we know they don't really perform in the playoffs. And then Philadelphia, I think, is the toughest matchup, and maybe Philadelphia could beat um, the Raptors. I'd give Philadelphia the edge in that series, but I wouldn't be surprised in the least if the Raptors do end up winning that series. For the most part, I think this team can go far in the playoffs. They can make the Eastern Conference Finals this season. They are finally figuring it out. And the Raptors finally figuring it out is a tough scene for everybody else in the Eastern Conference because it can ruin a lot of the team's plans this season when talking about the playoffs. Like I said, the Raptors have already beaten the top teams in the East, the Nets, the Bucks twice, the Sixers, and I believe um, the Celtics. They've beaten them this year too. I might be wrong on that. But I know for certain they beat the Bucks twice, the Nets, and the Philadelphia 76ers. The Raptors are finally figuring it out, and they should be a team to watch for moving forward. They have been playing out of their minds as of late, and I think they deserve a lot of credit for it. A player that's deserve, that deserves a lot of credit for how they're playing is Chris Paul. And I want to ask this question. LeBron is in his 18th season. We all praise him for it because he's 36 years old and still performing at a MVP level. 
but how come that energy isn't isn't how come we don't give that energy for Chris Paul? Chris Paul is doing damn near the same thing. He's 34. He's going to turn 35. Um, in the he's 35 years old right now. He's going to turn 36 in the month of May, and he's still playing at an all-star level. Chris Paul is still playing at an all-star level. He's averaging 17, 5, and 8, 49% from the field, 39% from the three, damn near almost 40%. And he's shooting 97% from the free throw line. And when I first saw that number, I really couldn't believe it my damn self. And these are all better numbers than what he put up last year in OKC when he was named to the All-Star team. And the other night, he passed Oscar Robertson, and Chris Paul is now sixth all-time in the assist leaderboard. The Phoenix Suns are 19-10. and 10. They're fourth in the Western Conference. And if they make the playoffs this season, which I think we're all expecting them to make, this would be the first time they would make the playoffs since 2010. And the other night against the Pelicans, Chris Paul had 19 assists. He truly is a point god. And when people look at this Phoenix Suns team, they see Devin Booker and Chris Paul, and everybody automatically thinks that, Devin Booker is the better player because he's a flashier player. He put up more scoring numbers. Um, he put he puts up more points per game. But I think the best player on this team is Chris Paul. And advanced analytics prove it. Booker versus CP3. Booker's win shares are 1.6. Chris Paul's win shares are 3.7. When you talk about value over replacement, Booker has a 0.2. Chris Paul is at a 1.5. And their box plus minus, Chris Paul has a box plus minus of 4.5, and Devin Booker has one of negative one. The advanced analytics prove that Chris Paul has been more important this season than Devin Booker. And if Chris Paul never gets traded to the Suns, I don't think any of us think they can be where they are in the standings right now when we'd even be questioning if they were going to make the playoffs. Chris Paul has made... The Suns, not only a playoff team, but a scary playoff team that can upset quite a couple teams in the Western Conference. And this is not a knock on Devin Booker. I love Devin Booker as a player, and I love his game. But this is just being honest about the situation and analyzing it and saying, man, Chris Paul might, he probably should be an all-star this season. I mentioned earlier He's 35 right now. He's turning 36 in May, and he's still playing at an all-star level. He's playing like one of the better point guards in the NBA, and you don't really hear anybody talking about it. Nobody is talking about, oh, Chris Paul, he deserves so much respect and credit. We see it every day with LeBron. He's third, we, we, we see it with LeBron so much that people think he should win MVP just because of his age. That's how much we see it with LeBron. We don't see it with Chris Paul at all, though. I mean... I know Chris Paul doesn't belong in the MVP conversation, but you don't even see him being talked about as an all-star. Nobody's talked about it at all. At all. Last year in OKC, nobody thought they'd make the playoffs. Chris Paul takes them to the playoffs. This year, the Suns have exceeded so much expectations, in my opinion. Like, we knew they would be in the playoffs, but we didn't know they'd be a top-four seed in the Western Conference. Who really expected that? And... I think Chris Paul has been one of the main guys and the main reasons why this Phoenix Suns team has been so good. And if I were voting, 
for who should be on the all-star reserves team, Chris Paul is definitely one of them. And I hope he does get in because he deserves it a lot. He deserves it a lot. That's it for the basketball portion of this episode. Now we're going to get into the football portion of this episode. This is kind of a weirder format if you've been used to listening to this podcast for a while. You know that we do usually just one whole football one and one whole basketball one. But we're going to start merging the two and doing basketball and football, mostly because there isn't much football news to report on, and it seems like there's more basketball news nowadays. But Mondays will always probably be a couple basketball topics and mostly football topics for the most part. And yeah, now we're going to get into the football um, um, part of this episode. We're going to talk about Sam Donald and if the Jets should keep him. Dak Prescott, Justin Fields, some quarterback prospects, and reviewing the offseason for some teams. Um, before I get into the topic, though, um, I, I think everybody saw the viral video of Cam Newton and the camper getting into it, and the camper basically calling uh, Cam Newton that he tell, telling Cam Newton, Cam Newton that he sucks and stuff like that. I was watching the video, and every of course, it's very disrespectful. No doubt about it. And I was just wondering, what makes a teenager do something like that? Like, I get why, immaturity, of course. But this is an NFL player. You're at his camp. And instead of trying to learn from him, you are disrespecting him and calling him names. Yeah, I I get that Cam Newton is not on the roster right now. and He's a free agent. But nonetheless, this is a guy who went to a Super Bowl this is a guy who's an MVP. This is a guy who won the Heisman in college, won a national championship in college. See, I don't know this kid. I don't even know his name. But statistically, that kid would probably never do that. And instead of trying to befriend Cam Newton and showing him respect, you choose to go the disrespect route. And on Twitter, some a tweet caught my eye that this is the first take generation. Um, I don't really... I don't really... Uh, I'm not really on that bandwagon of supporting that statement because I think in any generation, there's always going to be disrespectful people in other generations. We didn't have cameras to kind of showcase that, but I've seen a lot of kids who are disrespectful as young kids. Like I, I don't think that's anything new. I really don't think that's anything new. Um, I think now we just get to see it more because social media is there. I mean, video recording is there. It's it, it exists back then. It didn't exist. And whatever you may feel about that situation, that's just my take on it. But I just thought overall the situation, it was very disrespectful. And I can't believe that that even happened. It, out of all the things potentially going viral, that was one of the last things on my list that I thought would go viral. And Cam Newton deserves a lot of credit for how he handled the situation. Ultimately, he really does. Teddy Bridgewater unfollowed the Carolina Panthers on Instagram. And today, I believe a report came out that the Panthers are looking to move on from Teddy Bridgewater with physical limitations playing a factor. Teddy Bridgewater unfollowed the Carolina Panthers on Instagram and put his account on private. And David Tepper, the Panthers owner, is extremely motivated on landing Deshaun Watson via trade. 
one thing I got to say. Is anybody surprised? Not about the Deshaun Watson thing, but about Teddy Bridgewater having physical limitations. I think when Carolina signed him to that huge deal, everybody thought it was an overpay because we all knew he had those physical limitations. Teddy Bridgewater has always been a good QB. Not a great one. We all knew he didn't have a great arm. He had an okay arm. We all knew he was an accurate quarterback. He just is a very timid one. He doesn't take many shots down the field. I think we all knew that. And this past season, what if I were to tell you, this past season, Teddy Bridgewater had one of his best seasons of his entire career, probably the best. You'd probably think, huh? Right? But it's true. Teddy Bridgewater had his best season of his career. I mean, when talking about playing a full season, at least, he had his best season. He passed for a career-high 15 touchdowns and 15 starts, so one touchdown per game. He had the second-highest QB rating of his entire career, and if you're not counting the five-game sample size in New Orleans, then he had the first-highest QB rating of his career with the Panthers this past season. So, yes, he had the greatest year of his career so far, thus far, yet the numbers are average. Why is, why is that? Well, because Teddy Bridgewater has always been an average quarterback. When he made the Pro Bowl with the Vikings, he threw 14 touchdowns pa- passes that year. He made the Pro Bowl because the Vikings were winning, and mostly because of Adrian Peterson, not even because of Teddy Bridgewater. Eight games were lost within one score for the Panthers this past season. This past season, the Panthers had the 18th-ranked defense and a 24th-ranked offense, and the Panthers' defense, to me, was a very underrated group. A very, very underrated group. They were pretty bad on third down, but, I mean, they play fast. They are young, so they are extremely fast. They get after the ball. They're going to be really fun to watch in the future. Deshaun Watson going to the Carolina Panthers just makes sense for both sides. The Texans trade Deshaun Watson to the NFC, and the Texans receive the eighth pick in the draft and a boatload of more first-rounders and a bridge quarterback in Teddy Bridgewater. And I think... Out of every offer that they can get, you know, whether you're talking about the Dolphins or the Jets, of course, I think the Jets and Dolphins have the best offer, but you want Deshaun Watson out of the out of the AFC if you're going to trade him. If he goes to the Panthers, you're only going to see him one time every four years, which is manageable, even though if I were the Texans, I would not trade Deshaun Watson at all. I'd do everything in my power to keep Deshaun Watson. But, wow, if there is a place that I'd want to see Deshaun go that's outside of the 49ers, the Panthers would be one of them. Their offense would be Deshaun Watson, DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson, Christian McCaffrey. Joe Brady is an offensive coordinator. Joe Brady is such a brilliant offensive mind. He was getting head coaching interviews this past offseason. Not too recently, he was getting head coaching interviews. And... Curtis Samuel would probably leave because they wouldn't be able to sign him back if they get Deshaun Watson. They have to sign back Taylor Martin and Russell Okun because those those are the both tackles. They need to re-sign at least Taylor Martin. And like I said, the Panthers had the 18th-ranked defense and a 24th-ranked offense. With limited weapons in Houston, Deshaun Watson had the 18th-ranked offense, but his defense was the 27th-ranked defenses. The Panthers lost eight games by one score. 
if Deshaun Watson is there, they don't lose those games. They at least win half of them. And if they were to win half of them, they'd be a 500 team with Deshaun Watson. And their defense is really underrated. You look at Brian Burns, who's a really fast pass rusher. Zach Kerr, who had a career year this past season. Derek Brown, a top pick last season. Um, Uter Gross Matos out of Penn State. He he's he was up and down year. Shaq Thompson, Jeremy Chin, and Jermaine Carter, a very good linebacking core. Dante Jackson, a really fast cornerback, and Troy Price Jr. They didn't have a good year, but I'm kind of high on high on him as a prospect. The Panthers had the 18th ranked defense, and they led the league with 264 defensive tackles by rookies and had 3,256 defensive snaps played by first-year players. This defense is just going to get more experience, and with experience, they're going to be better. So 18 can quickly turn into top 10 if they make the right moves in free agency and in the draft. Ultimately, I think Deshaun Watson and the Carolina Panthers just make sense, and I would love for this to happen. I think it's a match made in heaven for him to go to the Carolina Panthers. And I don't think the Panthers trade Christian McCaffrey one because the dead cap would be just so damn much that it just wouldn't make sense to trade him at that point. And I think that Houston, if they're trying to go into a full rebuild, I don't think one of, I don't think they'd want a running back getting getting paid the most on their team to start off that rebuild. I, I just don't think it makes sense for both sides. Christian McCaffrey's a hell of a player, but running backs, you just don't really pay running backs that much money in the NFL. That it, it just is what it is. But ultimately, I think this is a match made in heaven. And I expect Teddy Bridgewater to, if he doesn't get, if he doesn't get traded to the Texans for Deshaun Watson and, of course, way more picks, I would see the Patriots being a team that comes knocking on the door because they need a quarterback and they're looking at every single option. I think he can run Josh McDaniels' offense pretty well. But I think pretty much Teddy Bridgewater's time in Carolina is done. And it's crazy to say that after one season. I mean, I think last season we all knew he got overpaid, but after one season he's already out from the Carolina Panthers, most likely. I think it was a short-sighted move by the Panthers to sign him in the first place. And I think it's short-sighted of, the, of them for, I think it's short-sighted of the Panthers to outcast their starting quarterback without having a quarterback already in line that they can get. It, it's kind of really dumb all around, but hopefully it all works for them and they get Deshaun Watson because if they do, they can oh, they can probably win the NFC South next season. I wouldn't say win second because Tampa Bay will be there, but they can be second in the NFC South and make the playoffs if they were to get Deshaun Watson. You never really know what you have until it's gone. And I think we can all agree when it comes to that. We never really know what we have until it's gone. And I think that describes the Cowboys and Dak Prescott right now. The Cowboys franchise tagged Dak Prescott last season. And even though he got backlashed a lot, you know, he got a lot of criticism because he was known as a stat patter. He inflated his stats. And everybody thought his stats were pretty much inflated. He was a game manager. Then we see him go down and the Cowboys look nothing like how they look like with Dak Prescott. Now Cowboys fans are appreciating Dak Prescott. Now there's less of a divide between who we think Dak Prescott is. But I'm going to say this. 
Dak Prescott, I don't think that he's going to sign a long-term deal with the Cowboys. And it's a shame, but it's the truth. Dak Prescott played under the franchise tag last season for $31 million, And this year, if he gets tagged again, he'll be getting paid $38 million per year. For some reason, I just don't believe Jerry Jones and that organization is sold on Dak Prescott, and I don't know why. Out of the three quarterbacks drafted in 2016, Dak Prescott is the best. He's better than Jared Goff, and he's better than Carson Wentz. And not only is he a better quarterback, but he's a better leader as well. He has the most passing yards per game since 2019. Dak Prescott has 321.8 yards per game. Mahomes has 302 and Matt Ryan has 292. So Dak Prescott damn near has 20 more yards per game than Patrick Mahomes since 2019. The reason why the Cowboys probably won't sign Dak Prescott long-term is because, one, I don't think they're really sold on him. And, two, the cap is really tricky in doing that. And it's nobody else's fault but the Cowboys. They paid Ezekiel Elliott a running back, and they paid Jalen Smith a linebacker. Both positions who, if you ask any GM and any person that knows football, both positions that are really on the bottom of your priorities list, especially running back. So you paid a running back and an inside linebacker, both extremely replaceable positions, but you didn't pay your franchise quarterback. And now because you paid Zeke and Jalen Smith and Demarcus Lawrence, I think Demarcus Lawrence getting paid was fine though. But because you paid them big contracts, Now you can't really pay Dak Prescott. This situation reminds me a lot of Kirk Cousins when he was with the Washington Redskins. Ironically, both two both NFC East teams. Right now, they're known as the Washington football team, but during that dilemma, they were called the Redskins. So I'll I'll say the Redskins for this segment only. The Redskins franchise tagged Kirk Cousins twice. And... That was the first time in NFL history that a quarterback was franchised twice by their franchise. And then Kirk Cousins left in free agency. There was a bidding war going on between the Jets and the Vikings, and we all know the Vikings won, even though they didn't pay more for Kirk. Kirk just didn't want to go to the Jets. What happened after the Redskins franchised Kirk Cousins? Well, what's the Washington football team's problem right now. They don't have a quarterback. They're still looking for a quarterback. Before they got Kirk Cousins, they thought RG3 was the answer. But before RG3, their problem was quarterback. Then when RG3 didn't pan out, Kirk Cousins was really solid for them. He was their quarterback. The same thing is going to happen to the Dallas Cowboys if they don't re-sign Dak Prescott. They're going to have a quarterback problem. In this draft where they're picking, they can't really get one of the top quarterbacks in the draft. And just like the Washington Redskins, they're not going to truly appreciate, they they never truly appreciated Kirk Cousins until he was gone. Same thing with the Cowboys. It took a Dak Prescott injury for the Cowboys fans and NFL fans in general to truly understand Dak Prescott's value. Kirk Cousins was the first quarterback to get franchise tagged once. Dak Prescott may be the second quarterback in NFL history to get franchise tagged twice by his team. And we're talking about a quarterback who almost threw for 5,000 yards in 2019, 
30 touchdown had 30 touchdowns and 11 interceptions only. This is why the Cowboys have not won anything in so long and probably won't if they don't do right by Dak Prescott because they they make bad decisions, they mismanage their roster, they, they give contracts to the wrong people. Tony Romo had an injury history and Jerry Jones didn't hesitate to pay him once. And I love Tony Romo. He's a hell of a quarterback. He should have got paid. But so should Dak Prescott. Like Dak Prescott has been criminally underrated throughout his career and tenure with the Cowboys. He's been nothing but a good citizen, a, a, an elite leader. I mean, everybody loves Dak Prescott on the Cowboys and a very damn good quarterback. But somehow the Cowboys never thought it was a priority to pay Dak Prescott. A report came out that the Cowboys are making it a priority now to pay Dak Prescott long-term. But what does that exactly mean? Does it mean you're going to pay him what he wants? Or it's only a priority if if he accepts what you're willing to give? Because Dak Prescott on the open market will get a lot of money. And I guarantee you that other team in the NFC, the Washington football team, would pay a lot to get Dak Prescott on their team because I think it's a perfect fit if you were go to if you were to go to Washington. The deadline to franchise tag a player is March 9th, I believe, or to extend their contract. So we'll see if Dak Prescott gets his contract extension with the Cowboys. But I'm going to say this. Like I like I began the segment with, you never really know what you have until it's gone. And I hope that the Cowboys don't find that out the hard way. I hope that they do pay Dak Prescott and do right by Dak Prescott because he deserves it. It seems like this offseason there's a quarterback carousel going on. We really, there's so many moving parts this offseason. So far, we've seen Matthew Stafford go to the Rams, Jared Goff to the Lions, Teddy Bridgewater is probably going to leave the Panthers, Jimmy G, we don't know what's going to happen there with him yet. And I'm missing quite a few more moves that happened, but all the Carson Wentz to the Colts. But all in all, a quarterback who's also part of this quarterback carousel is Sam Darnold. What team is Sam Darnold going to play for in 2021? A report came out that the Jets are going to evaluate QBs before deciding on a deal for Sam Darnold. And I got to admit, I'm flip-flopping a lot on whether the Jets should keep or trade Sam Darnold. And that's because I am torn. I'm a New York Jets fan. If you can see right here, there's an action figure of Mark Sanchez behind me. When Sam Darnold got drafted, as a Jets fan, I thought he was our franchise quarterback. I mean, he he talks he talks like it. He's a very good guy off the field. He's humble. And I know that he works hard because he works with Josh Allen and Jordan Palmer in the offseason. So he's working on working on his game. I love Sam Darnold. He's shown flashes in the past that he can be a great quarterback. He's never had a supporting cast with the Jets, competent coaching, and off the field, he handles himself like a franchise QB. But I don't know if keeping him is the right decision, but I don't know if letting him go is the right one either. Sam Darnold to this point has thrown 45 touchdowns and 39 interceptions in his career and has a 78.6 quarterback rating. If the New York Jets had the number one pick in this draft, it would be a no-brainer. You draft Trevor Lawrence, and 
you trade Sam Donald right away. I guarantee you, if the Jets would have had the number one pick right now, Sam Donald would have already would have already been traded. But they don't. They have the second pick. And that's between that's gonna be either between Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, or Trey Lance and who they select. See, Zach Wilson has a quick release. He's agile. He has a strong arm. He's able to process defenses, but he is fragile. He is 6'3", but he looks six foot. And he's he already has an injury history in his throwing shoulder. And when you see him play, when he runs, he doesn't protect himself very well. When you're getting hit by college players, it's fine. But when you get hit by an NFL player, those injuries can pile up. And I'm not sure how durable Zach Wilson can be at the next level. And that injury history does frighten me. You look at Justin Fields. He's athletic. He has a strong arm. Slower release. But gets stuck on his first read way too often. At least that's been the criticism of Justin Fields to this point. And Ohio State runs a very uh, easy offense with Ryan Day. Trey Lance. He's the most athletic of the three. Of of he's the most a- athletic of the three. Of of Fields, Wilson, Lance is the most at most athletic. He has a strong arm, a slower release as well. But his problem is experience. He has only played one full season in college, and I think three hundred and thirty three snaps total at quarterback in college. I don't think he's ready to start right away. And Mac Jones, I guess you can put him there. Uh, he's very accurate, but. The lack of athleticism, I wouldn't take him at second overall. I wouldn't even think about it. All three of their pro days are coming soon. And my question is that I thought about this earlier is if Sam Donald was coming out in this draft as well, would we have Wilson Fields and Lance above Donald? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Donald would be the second best quarterback in this draft, no doubt about it. If Sam Donald was coming out this this draft. I'm torn as a Jets fan of whether I want the Jets to trade Sam Donald or not because we're going to run a West Coast offense with Michael Floor, and that's something that Sam can thrive in, and I think Zach Wilson fits this offense the best as well. But it's tough because Wilson, durability is a major concern. Even with Donald, durability is a major concern. Fields, I mean, just his processing information is a concern, and Lance, the experience is a concern. In a perfect world, I would want Sam Darnold to be the franchise quarterback of the Jets. But based on interviews that I've seen from Robert Sala, I just believe that they're going to move on from Sam Darnold, and that's just a harsh truth. I just hope that they trade him to a good situation where he can thrive in. Washington would be a good one. I don't like Chicago at all. I think they're going to ruin Sam Darnold as well. Washington would be a good one as well with Von Vera and Scott Turner. But man, I really wish that Sam Darnold was the was the Jets franchise quarterback and he becomes that. I'm going to say this, I really if the Jets draft a quarterback or don't draft a quarterback, I'm fine with either decision. Like the Jets have said, they're going to evaluate every quarterback. So if they feel like Sam Donald is the better one, they're going to stick with him and part of me hopes that that happens because Sam Donald has never had a fair shot to succeed with the New York Jets. And it's unfortunate. And we've seen time and time again that situations are usually the reason why quarterbacks succeed. Last season, Denzel Mims and Crowder were not healthy when Donald played. 
two years after that, I mean, who did we really have offensively? We had no offensive line. Donald had no time to throw. And in his rookie season, same thing, no offensive weapons. Man, I'm torn as a Jets fan whether I want Sam Donald to stay or go. But I know this. Whether he stays or he goes, I hope that he becomes a quarterback that I know that he can become because he's exceptionally talented, and I still believe in Sam Donald. I think something that's important to note, uh, I think this is a kind of a headliner that I put I, I put in this topic last minute. It's a topic about Tua Tagovailoa. So earlier today, Devontae Smith was asked by an NFL team which quarterback is a point-blank better quarterback, Mac Jones or Tua Tagovailoa? And Devontae Smith said Mac Jones. And some people on the internet went wild about this and basically used this as a another reason of why Tua is a bust. And former GM Mike Tannenbaum said that Mac Jones has a, has a floor of going eighth overall in the draft which means that he's not going to go past eighth overall, which I think is baloney. I don't believe it at all. What was Devontae Smith supposed to say? Was he supposed to say Tua was better? Was I don't know what he was supposed to say. Mac Jones was the quarterback for Devontae Smith when Devontae Smith had his Heisman year. Of course, he's going to say that Mac Jones was better, at least in my opinion. He's going to say it. Any criticism that anybody has to Tua coming out of college, you can have the same for Mac Jones. And Tua Tagovailoa in his starts this season had 1,814 yards. This season, these were his stats. 11 touchdowns, 5 interceptions, and an 87 quarterback rating. I've said this before. I think Tua will be good. I don't think he will be special, but I think he'll be a good quarterback. I'm not that high on Tua. But to call a 22-year-old a bust in his second season in the NFL is very short-sighted. Uh, I think he can be a good quarterback. I've seen pictures of him working out in the offseason, and he looks really swole and built. He's really working hard this offseason. He has received a ton of criticism this season. This off se- this season, this offseason, Tua did. He's seen Justin Herbert really ascend in his rookie year. Rumors have been swirling about him and potential trade being potential being a potential trade asset in the Deshaun Watson deal and with the full offseason to train with the full offseason offseason for the Dolphins to surround him with talent this is the perfect opportunity for Tua to quiet down all the noise and have a breakout season when you look at the Dolphins roster they already have a top defense in the league their offense is with Devontae Parker, Jakeem Grant. They can use some help. If they draft Jamar Chase with that third overall pick and have Jamar Chase, Devontae Parker, Jakeem Grant, watch out. I do think that Jamar Chase is a better prospect than, than Devontae Smith. And after Devontae Smith said this about Tua, I don't think they're drafting Devontae Smith third overall. The offensive line can be fixed in free agency. The, the Dolphins have a bunch of cap space. With a much new and improved offense next season, I think it's safe to say that Tua Tagovailoa is going to have a breakout year next year. And I feel pretty confident in saying that. Like I said, I'm not high on Tua, but 
like I always say time and time and time and time again, situations make quarterbacks. And Tua is in one of the better situations of any young quarterback in the NFL. A good culture, a good coach, a good defense, some offensive weapons already, and a bunch of cap space to surround him with, surround him with more weapons. If the Dolphins can do that, I think Tua is going to have a breakout year. Like, I, I don't even think I can think much about it. Mike Gesicki, Devontae Parker, Jakeem Grant, Jamar Chase, offensive line help, all coming in. I think this is going to be the year where people start turning the corner on their opinions on Tua. I was very critical of him last season. But usually, you know, I'm critical to the point where it's more of an analysis critical where I'm not going to bash a player. I'm just going to see, I'm just going to say my gut feeling. But when I see people bashing players just to bash them, I kind of like to step in and defend those players. And I see that with Tua right now. And I hope that Tua does succeed in the NFL. I think that he will. And the AFC East is going to be really tough with the Buffalo Bills having Josh Allen in their roster, a Super Bowl caliber roster with the Dolphins coming, the Patriots having cast space, the Jets also hopefully getting a better team and situation with Robert Sala now being the coach. The AFC East is looking up. And, man, I think the Dolphins are going to be one of those teams that either win the AFC East or are second in the AFC East. But playoffs are a realistic destination for them. And I think next season they, they will probably make the playoffs because Tua has a breakout year. Talking about young quarterbacks, I'm going to transition into talking about Justin Fields. There have been a lot of concerns about Justin Fields and his ability to consistently scan the field. And they don't really concern me because I've seen enough film on where Justin Fields does go through a full progression and does read the field. And if you're watching this and you don't know what a full progression is, when a play is called you have different options on different routes. So you have your first option, which is his number one receiver. Whatever route he runs, that's the guy you look to going first. And when people say a quarterback gets stuck on their first read, it's because the quarterback is looking at his first option the entire time. And if he doesn't see that open, he still looks at that option. When you go through a full progression, it means that a quarterback is looking at the first option. He sees it's not there. He looks at the second option, then he looks at the third, then he looks at the fourth. He basically scans through the whole field. Justin Fields has dropping down, has dropped down in draft boards. Todd McShay is every draft board he has Justin Fields dropping lower and lower. Right now, he's known as a first read quarterback, which I think is an unfair name. And my advice to all NFL teams that are thinking about drafting a quarterback in the draft. Don't overthink it. Um, don't overthink it. Fields is a great prospect. And I'll be honest, overthinking things happens to me all the time. I order a lot of food on Uber Eats. I spend a lot of money on Uber Eats and DoorDash. I kind of, I'm mad at myself about that. But you ever go through DoorDash or Uber Eats? I'll use Uber Eats as an example. You ever go through Uber Eats and instead of looking at the other food options, you go straight down to the free delivery ones and the saving shuffle and you don't love the options on the shaving, shaving, saving shuffle, but you pick one of the restaurants just because it's going to save you doll, uh, some money on the delivery fee. Instead of looking for a better restaurant, 
paying the delivery fee, but ultimately having better food. See, I think this is what's happening with a lot of teams. Instead of going for the better restaurant, a lot of teams are trying to go the saving shuffles route and not take Justin Fields. I think Justin Fields is that better restaurant. I think Justin Fields, you take that risk on because he has all the tools to succeed. You know, I'd rather go Justin Fields with the with the fourth pick or the third pick instead of getting a quarterback later in the draft in a Kyle Trask or Kellen Mond. Yeah, you're going to save a first-round pick and you're going to get better value at that later pick, saving shuffle, saving shuffle, as I like to say. But if you get that better restaurant and you go with Justin Fields, you're going to be better. You're going to be more fulfilled. This draft has a lot of good quarterbacks. Outside of Lawrence, I think Lance Fields and Wilson, any one of them can be selected as a second quarterback off the board. It really doesn't matter to me, and I wouldn't be mad at either one. I think Lance just a little bit because of his experience, but between Wilson and, Wilson and Fields, the fact that some people are acting as if Zach Wilson is a way better prospect than Justin Fields is absurd to me. Everyone called Justin Herbert a bust before he played a snap in the NFL. Don't forget that. Everybody thought Josh Allen out of Wyoming was going to be a bust. When will people understand that the situation a QB is drafted into is what is going to make or break a quarterback most of the time? Let's just look at the 2018 quarterback draft class as an example. Baker Mayfield gets drafted into a bad situation but still has a good year because he has a number one wide receiver in Jarvis Landry. I believe he had Jarvis Landry that year. I could be wrong. Then his second year, when he had a bad head coach in Freddie Kitchens, he dropped down. Now Kevin Stefanski comes in, Odell comes in, they, their offensive line is stacked. Baker has another great year. It almost seems like good coaching, good roster, equal good quarterback play. Then, Sam Donald, you look at him, the second quarterback taken in that draft. He goes to the Jets. He hasn't had a, a good situation with the Jets since he got drafted. He's about to get traded. The Jets are about to move on from him. Josh Allen, he was the biggest risk in that draft. No receivers his first year in Buffalo. The second year, they improved the offensive line. They signed Cole Beasley and John Brown. He has a better season. Then in Josh Allen's third year, they get a number one wide receiver in Stephon Diggs, and he has a breakout MVP-like year. Then Josh Rosen, the fourth quarterback taken in that draft. He got drafted into one of the worst situations in the Arizona Cardinals. Steve Wilkes was their head coach. That team was abysmal. And he got traded and never had a chance since then. He did go to Miami, but Miami had an equally awful situation when he went. Lamar Jackson, the fifth quarterback drafted, the last pick in the first round, had a great offensive line. And then in his second year, Greg Roman, a, a running game extraordinaire in terms of calling plays, in terms of calling running plays, a perfect fit for Lamar. Lamar ascends into an MVP. It almost seems like situation coaching plus good talent around you makes you a quarterback or at least helps you reach your ceiling. Ohio State didn't run a pro-style offense 
But I still have no doubt that Justin Fields is going to succeed at the next level. He has the same QB coach as Deshaun Watson. Trey Lance has the same QB coach as both of them as well. He has the athletic ability to escape from outside the pocket. He has a strong arm. He has leadership skills. He's accurate. When they were going to face Clemson in the All-State Bowl, Justin Fields said he prepared like this game. He prepared for this game like no other. And what happened? He had a historic performance against Clemson in the All-State Bowl in the college football playoffs. My dream scenario for Justin Fields is the Atlanta Falcons. You get to learn under Matt Ryan. You paired up with Arthur Smith, who's a genius offensive coordinator and play caller. And you have weapons like Julio Ridley and Hayden Hurst when you get a chance to play and when he is ready. Arthur Smith and Justin Fields can be one of the better coach, head coach slash quarterback duo in the NFL in a couple of years. Justin Fields is from Atlanta, Georgia. So him going to Atlanta makes the most sense. The Jags are taking Trevor Lawrence. If everything goes as planned, the Jets are probably taking Zach Wilson. The Dolphins are taking Panay Sewell. The Bengals are probably taking, I mean, the Dolphins are taking Jamar Chase probably. The Bengals are taking Panay Sewell. At the fifth pick, the Falcons have the best chance to take Justin Fields, and they should pull the trigger and take Justin Fields. Don't overthink this. Justin Fields is going to be a good quarterback. Take him. Stop nitpicking his flaws. They did the same thing with Zach Wilson, too. They're doing the same thing with him. They're great prospects. If you have a great situation and you're confident in your roster and situation, don't hesitate and take him. Take Justin Fields. He's going to be a great pro. Now, off the subject of quarterbacks, we are going to preview the offseason for two NFC West teams, the Seattle Seahawks and the Los Angeles Rams. See, the Seahawks and the Rams both have the same problems. They have no cap space at all. It's actually pretty laughable at how bad the cap situation is. I don't know who they will sign. So these offseason previews were kind of tough to make. But we're going to attempt to make them regardless. The Seattle Seahawks offseason preview. They have a cap space of a little over $4 billion. And right now, they fired Brian Schoenheimer as their OC. They hired Shade, Shade Waldron as a new OC, which is the Rams passing game coordinator. And that's important because of what they can potentially do in the offseason. In terms of roster cuts, I don't really see any because um, no player by cutting them is going to really free up a ton of cap. The only guy would be Carlos Dunlap. Cutting Carlos Dunlap would save the Seattle Seahawks $14 million. But when they traded for Dunlap, that defense took a turn for the better. So I wouldn't release him. I'd simply restructure his contract. After potential restructures... I think the Seahawks Seahawks can have some cap space between 10 to 18 million dollars and this is going to be a realistic offseason. I'm not going to have all the star players go to go to the Seattle Seahawks. It's going to be a realistic offseason. So with a projected cap space of 10 to 20 million dollars, they can do a couple things. Right now they have 31 pending free agents. 
And but these are the most notable ones: KJ Wright, Jacob Hollister, Benson Mayowa, Carlos Hyde, Quentin Dunbar, Ethan Pokick, David Moore, Shaq Griffin, Puna Ford, and Chris Carson. Out of these guys, I think they re-signed Puna Ford because he's a restricted free agent and uh, Jacob Hollister. I think KJ Wright goes. That's why they drafted Jordan Brooks. I think Benson Iowa goes as well. He wasn't that great last season. Um, Quentin Dunbar had an off year. Shaq Griffin is going to def- demand way too much money that the Seahawks can pay, and they're not going to be able to pay that. Chris Carson, too injury-prone, and Ethan Polkick. I think there are better center options out there in free agency. So... Right now, the positions of need for the Seahawks are offensive line. We know that. Center, a guard, a, they need a tight end as well, an, a, a reliable one, a cornerback because Shaq Griffin is leaving, an edge rusher, and a number three wide receiver. The good news for the Seahawks is that there are some good options in free agency at center and guard. At center, Ted Carls is there. Ted Carls is there, who I think is the upgrade. Austin Ryder, and Alex Mack. Ted Carls is good, but he's average. I think the prize possession is Alex Mack. At this stage in Alex Mack's career, I think he wants to win the Super Bowl, and he wants to be in a winning situation. Because of that, I think it's a realistic It's realistic to think that the Seahawks can sign Alex Mack this offseason. Then we look at guard, Joe Thune, Lane Taylor, Austin Blythe, John Feliciano, Coleccio Semele, and Brian Winters. Joe Thune, while it would be nice to have him on the Seahawks, it is very unrealistic because he's going to demand a, a bunch of money. So I think they go a cheaper option here with Lane Taylor, Feliciano, Osemele, or Brian Winters. Then at tight end, you have John o. Smith, Tyler Croft, Tyler Eifert. Gerald Everett, Jordan Reed, Richard Rodgers. The Seahawks want to pursue Jonu Smith, but I think the cap number is way too unrealistic, so I don't think they get him. I think a realistic option is Gerald Everett. He was with the Rams. The passing and coordinator from the Rams is now the Seahawks OC. It just makes sense, and I think Gerald Everett is a really good tight end. He's a reliable tight end. I'm not too sure about his blocking, but in terms of receiving, he's a really good receiver at tight end. Then at cornerback, there are some veteran options that they that can go to the Seahawks and play on a cheaper contract because they want to win. Patrick Peterson, Richard Sherman, even though Richard Sherman is unrealistic because of the bad blood between them. Uh, A.J. Boye, Jason McCourty, and Terrence Mitchell are some guys. And at edge rusher, Danica Watry, who had a pretty good season with the Colts this past season, who I think would be a good addition to the Seahawks defensive line. And Jordan Jenkins from the Jets. He's an outside linebacker. He'd fit perfect in the scheme. And I, he was he led the Jets in total sacks this past season. And for the past couple of seasons, that for that fact, he's a pretty good player. And wide receiver three, Josh Reynolds coming from the Rams as well. So ultimately in free agency, I think that the Seattle Seahawks sign Alex Mack, Lane Taylor, AJ Boye, Danico Autry, Josh Reynolds, and Jordan Jenkins. I think those are the guys that they have to target the most. And those are the guys that I think the Seahawks could sign and still be above their cap limit. Alex Mack and Elaine Taylor are the top priorities just to fix up that offensive line. Russell Wilson has already, you know, announced his frustration with getting hit too much. 
So right now, the priority is to protect Russell Wilson at all costs, no doubt about it. So they have to fix that offensive line. A.J. Boye has been pretty bad for the past couple of seasons. Even I think he's capable of being a really good corner still. Because of that, the Seahawks can bring him in on a cheap deal. Danico Autry isn't going to command that much money. Josh Reynolds isn't either, and Jordan Jenkins won't as well. Then, when talking about the draft and who they should target, they don't have a first-round pick. They have the 56th pick in this draft, and they have a second-rounder, a fourth-rounder, a fifth-rounder, and a sixth-rounder. I think these are the three guys that should, they should target that can possibly be available where they are picking. Quinn Miners, Trey Sermon, and Brevin Jordan. Quinn Miners is a center. He really showed out in the Senior Bowl. The Seahawks need a center, so that would be a perfect fit. But at the 56th pick, who knows if Quinn Miners is going to be there. They might have to settle for Landon Dickerson if he's even there or, or Creed Humphrey. But then I look at other guys maybe in the fourth round, like Trey Sermon, who I think could be there. He fits the Seahawks running style, you know, tough going in between the tackles. I think Trey Sermon would be a perfect fit. And then Brevin Jordan. The Seahawks need a reliable tight end. And Brevin Jordan, if you watch Miami last season, he really flashed sometimes. And I think he's a really good tight end. He has all the physical tools to be one of the better tight ends in this draft class. So all in all, my potential depth chart for the Seattle Seahawks is on the offensive side of the football, Russell Wilson, Rashad Penny, DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, Josh Reynolds, Jacob Hollister or Brevin Jordan, Dwayne Brown, Lane Taylor, Alex Mack, Damian Lewis, and Brandon Shell remains at the right side of that offensive line at right tackle. See, I think this. Brandon Shell was not that good, right? But if he's your fourth best offensive lineman on the team, I think that's a pretty good line. Dwayne Brown, Damian Lewis, and Alex Mack, those are the three best. You got to sacrifice somewhere because you can't have a stacked offensive line across the board and stacked receivers and, a, and one of the best quarterbacks in the league. It's just not possible. You have to sacrifice somewhere, and I think Brandon Shell is going to be one of the worst players on that offensive line. But if he's your worst player on the offensive line, I don't think you're doing too bad. Now we look at defense. Carlos Dunlap, Puna Ford, Jerron Reed, Danica Waltry, Jordan Brooks, Bobby Wagner, Jordan Jenkins, A.J. Boye, D.J. Reed, Trey Flowers, Quadre Diggs, and Jamal Adams. Last season, we've seen, we saw this defense be one of the better defenses in the NFL down the stretch. Getting Danico Autry, getting Jordan Jenkins, getting A.J. Boye, who has potential to be one of the better corners in the league, I think is really going to make a huge difference for the Seattle Seahawks. They cannot lose Carlos Reed. I mean, Carlos Dunlap. So whatever they do, you can't let go of Carlos Reed. You have to restructure, restructure his contract. Whatever you have to do, do it. But do not cut Carlos Dunlap. But of course, if you have Bobby Wagner, Jamal Adams, Dunlap, and all this talent on the defense side, it's really hard for it to be bad. The defense, I know there are some holes at edge rusher. You need They need an edge rusher. But this offseason for the Seahawks is about building that offensive line and giving Russell Wilson protection because you don't want Russell Wilson to potentially want out from the Seattle Seahawks because he's not getting protected. You want to protect him at all costs. So this offseason is about getting Russell Wilson offensive line help, and that's why I think 
this, I think Alex Mack should be a top priority to sign in the offseason or at least one of these top guys like um, Joe Thune, Alex Mack, David Andrews, those guys, top priorities, and I think the Seahawks are going to get it done. We're heading into our last segment of the episode. This is the 12th topic, talking about the Rams offseason. We'll talk about it shortly. I've been talking for about an hour and 20 minutes now. It's hard to not drink water and talk this whole time because your mouth just gets dry throughout talking for so long. But the Rams offseason, I think when, when, when previewing the Los Angeles Rams offseason, I think it's really hard to find moves for them because I think they already had their splash offseason move, which was getting Matthew Stafford, getting an upgrade at quarterback. They have, the Los Angeles Rams, have no cap space whatsoever. They're over the cap by $33 million. And no matter who they restructure, who they cut, they're probably still going to be over the cap. So in terms of roster cuts, who can you really cut? It just makes no sense to cut anybody. The good part is that they don't have a a bunch of free agents that are key contributors. They have some, but not a bunch. A bunch are kind of replaceable. They have 16 pending free agents, and these are the most notable ones. Leonard Floyd, who I think is going to leave because he's going to demand way too much money. Austin Blythe, I think he's going to leave as well, even though he should be a top priority to keep. Troy Hill, he leaves. Slot corner, older side of, he's, he's 30. I think he leaves. Gerald Everett, I think Everett leaves as well. John Johnson, one of the better safeties in the league, I think he's going to leave as well. Josh Reynolds is going to leave. That's why they drafted Van Jefferson. And Samson Ebukam and Darius Williams. I think Darius Williams stays for sure. The reason is, is because he's a restricted free agent. And if any team wants to sign Darius Williams, the Rams can slap a franchise tender on him, which means that if any team decides to sign him, they can get a pick in return. So because of that, I think Darius Williams stays. And Samson Ebukam why I would like him to stay, I don't think he probably will, but for this, for the sake of this video, I think he stays as well. So when talking about their positions of needs, they don't have many. At inside linebacker, that's one. At edge rusher, that's another one because they're losing Leonard Floyd. And at center, which I think they could address in the draft. And wide receiver number three, but I think that's why they signed Van Jefferson. The Rams need a deep threat. Because Cooper Cup and Robert Woods are good receivers, but they aren't necessarily deep threats. So they need a deep threat. Marvin Jones has been connected to the Los Angeles Rams. But let's be honest, unless Marvin Jones takes a massive pay cut, and I mean a huge pay cut, he is not going to be on the Rams. Because of that, I don't think it's realistic. But some deep threat wide receivers that you can look for are Marvin Jones, of course, Khalif Raymond, John Ross or Marvin Hall. I think John Ross would be perfect. He can potentially revive his career with the Los Angeles Rams. I would really like him to sign with them. Then at inside linebacker, you got a veteran, Avery Williamson, who might be willing to play for the Rams for cheap, and Denzel Perriman, who might be on the more expensive side. Even though he's not as 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 good as Avery Williamson, he is younger, which I think 
goes a huge way in negotiating a contract. And at edge rusher, there's really no edge rusher in this free agency class that the Rams can target that they can afford because they have literally no money to sign anybody. But I think ultimately in free agency, they sign John Ross and that's it. I think they don't make much free agent moves because they don't have the money to. But I think in the draft, the draft is where the Rams are going to flourish the most. I know they don't have a first round pick, but they have a second rounder. They have two third rounders. They have a fourth, a sixth, and a seventh. I think those two third rounders are going to go a long way. And in the third round of the draft, you can find a lot of gems and you can get a lot of good players. And I think that's what the Rams are going to do. They need a center. And I said they're going to address their center position in the draft. Three guys that stand out. Creed Humphrey, Landon Dickerson, and Quinn Miners. I think out of the three, they draft Creed Humphrey because I think Quinn Miners is going to be off the board. So is Landon Dickerson. Landon Dickerson is only falling off because of injury history, but if it wasn't for his injury, he'd be at the top of this list. I think they draft Creed Humphrey with his 57th pick. Then in the third round, I think inside linebacker out of LSU, Jabril Cox, is a real possibility, and I think they could draft him. Jabril Cox is a really good linebacker. The fact that he hasn't been talked about much in this draft is a shame, but he had a really good senior bowl and expect the Rams to address that position in the draft as well. And don't be surprised if Jabril Cox is the name. So in the draft, ultimately, I'm not going to go through like all the rounds, but the two most important players I have them drafting are Creed Humphrey and Jabril Cox. And this is the Los Angeles Rams potential depth chart. Matthew Stafford, Cam Akers, Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, John Ross, Tyler Higby, Andrew Whitworth, David Edwards, Creed Humphrey, Austin Corbett, Rob Harvenstein, and on defense, Michael Brockers, Sebastian Do- Joseph Day, Aaron Donald, Samson Ebukam, Jabril Cox, Troy Reader, Terrell Lewis, who was hurt last season, but I think he's going to be good to go this upcoming season, Jalen Ramsey, Darius Williams, David Long Jr., Jordan Fuller, and Taylor Rapp. Of course, the Rams are going to lose a lot of key players this upcoming season because they don't have the money to re-sign them. But ultimately, when you have Jalen Ramsey and Aaron Donald on your defense, I think you'll be fine as long as the scheme is good. And the Rams already made their splash offseason move already. Their splash move was getting rid of Jared Goff and bringing in Matthew Stafford. If Marvin Jones decides to take that pay cut, of course, it would be huge for the Rams, but... I don't know how realistic that is, but the Rams already made their splash move. It was getting Matthew Stafford in. Even even though I don't have them making much offseason moves, the Rams are still a team that I would put at the top of my list in terms of going to the Super Bowl this upcoming season. The only team in the NFC who I think are I'd put above are the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but outside of them, I think the Rams are second. And I think this season is going to be the season where Matthew Stafford changes the reputation on his career and does a full 360 because his career was wasted with the Detroit Lions. Basically, his whole damn career was wasted with with the Detroit Lions so far. But now with the Los Angeles Rams, with the great roster around him, a great running game, a great head coach in Sean McVay, offensive weapons, an offensive line, an elite defense, look for the Rams to make noise and Matthew Stafford to have an MVP-like 
season. So this is going to do it for episode 70 of the Pick Aside podcast. This was a fun episode to record. I got to tell you, it's such a different process preparing for a solo episode than it is for preparing for two other guests. The reason why these episodes have been so short are because I learned the hard way that you have to prepare for a solo one differently than with other people. And, you know, it's harder solo, but obviously I still have a lot of fun doing it because I love talking sports, whether it's with people or by myself. It's always a blast. I appreciate all of you guys for listening. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Pick Aside Podcast on TikTok and Instagram and at Pick Aside Pod on Twitter. And don't forget to give us a review on Apple Podcasts and write one because we're going to read it on the podcast. And if you feel generous enough to donate to us, you can on patreon.com slash pick aside podcast. I appreciate all of you guys for listening to this episode, episode number 70. It was a blast recording it. Thank you guys. And I'll see you next time.